1. Furnishing the home of good taste A brief sketch of the period styles in interior decoration with suggestions as to their employment in the homes of today by Lucy Abbott Throp Preface to try to write a history of furniture in a fairly short space is almost as hard as the square peg and round hole problem. No matter how one tries, it will not fit. One has to leave out so much of importance, so much of historic and artistic interest, so much of the life of the people that helps to make the subject vivid and has to take so much for granted, that the task seems almost impossible. In spite of this I shall try to give in the following pages a general but necessarily short review of the field, hoping that it may help those wishing to furnish their homes in some special period style. The average person cannot study all the subject thoroughly, but it certainly adds interest to the problems of one's own home to know something of how the great periods of decoration grew one from another how the influence of art in one country made itself felt in the next, molding and changing taste and educating the people to a higher sense of beauty. It is the lack of general knowledge which makes it possible for furniture built on amazingly bad lines to be sold masquerading under the name of some great period. The customer soon becomes bewildered, and, unless he has a decided taste of his own, is apt to get something which will prove a white elephant on his hands. One must have some standard of comparison. And the best and simplest way is to study the great work of the past, to study its rise and climax rather than the decline, to know the laws of its perfection so that one can recognize the exaggeration which leads to degeneracy. The ebb and flow is most interesting, the feeling the way at the beginning, ever growing surer and surer until the high level of perfection is reached, and then the desire to gild the lily, leading to over-ornamentation, and so to decline. However, The germ of good taste and the sense of truth and beauty is never dead, and asserts itself slowly in a transition period, and then once more one of the great periods of decoration is born. There are several ways to study the subject, one of the pleasantest naturally being travel, as the great museums, palaces, and private collections of Europe offer the widest field, in this country, also, the museums and many private collections are rich in treasures and there are many proud possessors of beautiful isolated pieces of furniture. If one cannot see originals the libraries will come to the rescue with many books showing research and a thorough knowledge and appreciation of the beauty and importance of the subject in all its branches. I have tried to give an outline, which I hope the reader will care to enlarge for himself, not from a collector's standpoint, but from the standpoint of the modern homemaker, to help him furnish his house consistently to try to spread the good word that period furnishing does not necessitate great wealth, and that it is as easy and far more interesting to furnish a house after good models, as to have it banal and commonplace. The first part of this little book is devoted to a short review of the great periods, and the second part is an effort to help adapt them to modern needs, with a few chapters added of general interest to the homemaker. A short bibliography is also added both to express my thanks and indebtedness to many learned and delightful writers on the subject of house furnishing in all its branches, and also as a help to others who may wish to go more deeply into its different divisions than is possible within the covers of a book. I wish to thank the editors of House and Garden and the Woman's Home Companion for kindly allowing me to reprint articles and portions of articles which had appeared in their magazines. I wish also to thank the owners of the different houses illustrated, and Masros. Trowbridge and Livingston, architects, for their kindness in allowing me to use photographs. Thanks are also due Masros, Bergen and Orsenigo, Nahon and Company, Tiffany Studios, 
Joseph Wild and Company and the John Sama Company for the use of photographs to illustrate the reproduction of period furniture and rugs of different types. Egypt and Greece The early history of art in all countries is naturally connected more closely with architecture than with decoration, for architecture had to be developed before the demand for decoration could come, but the two had much in common. Noble architecture calls for noble decoration. Decoration is one of the natural instincts of man, and from the earliest records of his existence we find him striving to give expression to it. We see it in the scratched pieces of bone and stone of the cave dwellers, in the designs of savage tribes, and in druidical and Celtic remains, and in the great ruins of Yucatan. The meaning of these monuments may be lost to us, but we understand the spirit of trying to express the sense of beauty in the highest way possible, for it is the spirit which is still moving the world and is the foundation of all worthy achievement. Egypt and Assyria stand out against the almost impenetrable curtain of prehistoric days in all the majesty of their so-called civilization. Huge, massive, aloof from the world, their temples and tombs and ruins remain. Research has given us the key to their religion, so we understand much of the meaning of their wall paintings and the buildings themselves. The belief of the Egyptian that life was a short passage and his house a mere stopping place on the way to the tomb which was to be his permanent dwelling place, explains the great care and labor spent on the pyramids, chapels, and rock sepulchers. They embalm the dead for all eternity and put statues and images in the tombs to keep the mummy company. Colossal figures of their gods and goddesses guarded the tombs and temples, and still remain looking out over the desert with their strange, inscrutable Egyptian eyes. The people had technical skill which has never been surpassed. But the great size of the pyramids and temples and sphinxes gives one the feeling of despotism rather than civilization, of mass and permanency and the wonder of man's achievement rather than beauty. But they personify the mystery and power of ancient Egypt. The columns of the temples were massive, those of Karnak being 70 feet high, with capitals of lotus flowers and buds strictly conventionalized. The walls were covered with hieroglyphics and paintings. Perspective was never used and figures were painted side view except for the eye and shoulder. In the tombs have been found many household belongings, beautiful gold and silver work, beside the offerings put there to appease the gods. Chairs have been found, which, humorous as it may sound, are certainly the ancestors of empire chairs made thousands of years later. This is explained by the influence of Napoleon's Egyptian campaign, but there is something in common between the two times so far apart, of ambition and pride of grandeur and colossal enterprise. Greece may well be called the mother of beauty, for with the Greeks came the dawn of a higher civilization, a striving for harmony of line and proportion, an ideal clear, high and persistent. When the Dorians from the northern part of Greece built their simple, beautiful temples to their gods and goddesses they gave the impetus to the movement which brought forth the highest art the world has known. Traces of Egyptian influence are to be found in the earliest temples. But the Greeks soon rose to their own great heights. The Doric column was thick, about six diameters in height, fluted, growing smaller toward the top, with a simple capital, and supported the entablature. The horizontal lines of the architrave and cornice were more marked than the vertical lines of the columns. The portico with its row of columns supported the pediment. The Parthenon is the most perfect example of the Doric order, and shattered as it is by time and man it is still one of the most beautiful buildings in the world. It was built in the time of Pericles, from about 460 to 435 BC and the work was superintended by Phidias, who did much of the work himself and left the mark of his genius on the whole. The Ionic order of architecture was a development of the Doric, 
but was lighter and more graceful. The columns were more slender and had a greater number of flutes and the capitals formed of scrolls or volutes were more ornamental. The Corinthian order was more elaborate than the Ionic as the capitals were fully at the acanthus being used, the columns higher, and the entablature more richly decorated. This order was copied by the Romans more than the other two as it sweet their more florid taste. All the orders had the horizontal feeling in common as Gothic architecture has the vertical, and the simple plan with its perfect harmony of proportion leaves no sense of lack of variety. The perfection attained in architecture was also attained in sculpture and we see the same aspiration toward the ideal, the same wonderful achievement. This purity of taste of the Greeks has formed a standard to which the world has returned again and again and whose influence will continue to be felt as long as the world lasts. The minor arts were carried to the same state of perfection as their greater sisters, for the artists and artisans had the same noble ideal of beauty and the same enduring taste. We have carved gems and coins, and wonderful gold ornaments, painted and silver vases, and terracotta figurines, to show what a high point the household arts reached. No work of the great Grecian painters remains, Apelles, Zeuxis, are only names to us, but from the wall paintings at Pompeii where late Greek influence was strongly felt we can imagine how charming the decorations must have been. Egypt and Greece were the torchbearers of civilization. The Renaissance in Italy the Gothic period has been treated in later chapters on France and England as it is its development in these countries which most affects us. But the Renaissance in Italy stands alone. So great was its strength that it could supply both inspiration and leaders to other countries, and still remain preeminent. It was in the 15th and 16th centuries that this great classical revival in Italy came, this rebirth of a true sense of beauty which is called the Renaissance. It was an age of wonders, of great artistic creations, and was one of the great epochs of the world one of the turning points of human existence. It covered so large a field and was so many-sided that only careful study can give a full realization of the giants of intellect and power who made its greatness, and who left behind them work that shows the very quintessence of genius. Italy, stirring slightly in the 14th century, woke and rose to her greatest heights in the 15th and 16th. The whole people responded to the new joy of life, the love of learning, the expression of beauty in all its forms. All notes were struck, gay, graceful, beautiful, grave, cruel, dignified, reverential, magnificent, but all with an exuberance of life and power that gave to Italian art its great place in human culture. The great names of the period speak for themselves. Michelangelo, Raphael, Botticelli, Titian, Leonardo di Avensi, Andrea del Sardo, Machiavelli, Benvenuto Cellini, and a host of others. The inspiration of the Renaissance came largely from the later Greek schools of art and literature, Alexandria and Rhodes and the colonies in Sicily and Italy, rather than ancient Greece. It was also the influence which came to ancient Rome at its most luxurious period. The importance of the taking of Alexandria and Constantinople in 1453 must not be underestimated, as it drove scholars from the great libraries of the East carrying their manuscripts to the nobles and priests and merchant princes of Italy who thus became enthusiastic patrons of learning and art. This later type of Greek art lacked the austerity of the ancient type, and to the models full of joy and beauty and suffering, the Italians of the Renaissance added the touch of their own temperament and made them theirs in the glowing, rich and astounding way which has never been equaled and probably never will be. Perfection of line and beauty was not sufficient. The soul with its capacity for joy and suffering, the soul with all its maladies, as Pater says, had become a factor. 
The impression made upon Michelangelo by seeing the Laocoon and disinterred is vividly described by Longfellow illustration, the Italian Renaissance is still inspiring the world. In the two doorways the use of pilasters and frieze, and the pediment and round over door motifs are typical of the period. Long, long years ago, standing one morning near the baths of Titus, I saw the statue of Laocoon rise from its grave of centuries like a ghost writhing in pain, and as it tore away the knotted serpents from its limbs, I heard, or seemed to hear, the cry of agony from its white parted lips, and still I marvel at the three Rhodian artists, by whose hands this miracle was wrought, yet he beholds far nobler works who looks upon the ruins of temples in the forum here in Rome, if God should give me power in my old age to build for him a temple half as grand as those were in their glory, I should count my age more excellent than youth itself, and all that I have hitherto accomplished as only vanity, it was an age productive in personalities, many-sided, centralized, complete, artists and philosophers and those whom the action of the world had elevated and made keen, breathed a common air and caught light and heat from each other's thoughts, it is this unity of spirit which gives unity to all the various products of the Renaissance, and it is to this intimate alliance with mind, this participation in the best thoughts which that age produced, that the art of Italy in the 15th century owes much of its grave dignity and influence, a Walter Pater, studies in the Renaissance, it is to this unity of the arts we owe the fact that the art of beautifying the home took its proper place, during the Middle Ages the church had absorbed the greater part of the best man had to give, and home life was rather a hit or miss affair, the house was a fortress, the family possessions so few that they could be packed into chests and easily moved, during the Renaissance the home ideal grew, and, although the church still claimed the best, home life began to have comforts and beauties never dreamed of before, the walls glowed with color, tapestries and velvets added their beauties, and the noble proportions of the marble halls made a rich background for the elaborately carved furniture, the doors of Italian palaces were usually inlaid with woods of light shade, and the soft, golden tone given by the process was beautiful, but not too strong, contrast with the marble architrave of the doorway which in the 15th century was carved in low relief combined with discs of colored marble, sliced, by the way, from Roman temple pillars. Later as the classic taste became stronger the carving gave place to a plain architrave and the overdoor took the form of a pediment. Mandals were of marble, large, beautifully carved, with the fireplace sunk into the thickness of the wall. The overmantel usually had a carved panel, but later, during the 16th century, this was sometimes replaced by a picture. The windows of the Renaissance were a part of the decoration of the room, and curtains were not used in our modern manner, but served only to keep out the draughts. In those days the better the house the simpler the curtains. There were many kinds of ceilings used, marble, carved wood, stucco, and painting. They were elaborate and beautiful, and always gave the impression of being perfectly supported on the well-proportioned cornice and walls. The floors were usually of marble. Many of the houses kept to the plan of medieval exteriors, great expanses of plain walls with few openings on the outsides, but as they were built around open courts, the interiors with their colonnades and open spaces showed the change the Renaissance had brought. The Riccardi Palace in Florence and the Palazzo della Cancelleria in Rome are examples of this early type. The second phase was represented by the great Bramante whose theory of restraining decoration and emphasizing the structure of the building has had such important influence. One of his successors was Andrea Palladio, whose work made such a deep impression on Inigo Jones. The Library of Street Marks at Venice is a beautiful example of this part.
The third phase was entirely dominated by Michelangelo. The furniture, to be in keeping with buildings of this kind, was large and richly carved. Chairs, seats, chests, cabinets, tables, and beds, were the chief pieces used, but they were not plentiful at all in our sense of the word. The chairs and benches had cushions to soften the hard wooden seats. The stuffs of the time were most beautiful Genoese velvet, cloth of gold, tapestries, and wonderful embroideries, all lending their color to the gorgeous picture. The carved marriage chest, or castle, is one of the pieces of Renaissance furniture which has most often descended to our own day, for such chests formed a very important part of the furnishing in every household, and being large and heavy, were not so easily broken as chairs and tables. Beds were huge, and were architectural in form. A base and roof supported on four columns. The classical orders were used, touched with the spirit of the time, and the fluted columns rose from acanthus leaves set in an urn supported on lion's feet. The tester and cornice gave scope for carving and the panels of the tester usually had the lovely scrolls so characteristic of the period. The headboard was often carved with a coat of arms and the curtains hung from inside the cornice. Grotesques were largely used in ornament. The name is derived from grottos, as the Roman tombs being excavated at the time were called, and were in imitation of the paintings found on their walls, and while they were fantastic, the word then had no unkindly humorous meaning as now. Scrolls, dolphins, birds, beasts, the human figure, flowers, everything was called into use for carving and painting by genius of the artisans of the Renaissance. They loved their work and felt the beauty and meaning of every line they made, and so it came about that when, in the course of years, they traveled to neighboring countries, they spread the influence of this great period, and it is most interesting to see how on the Italian foundation each country built her own distinctive style. Like all great movements the Renaissance had its beginning, its splendid climax, and its decline, the development of decoration in France. When Caesar came to Gaul he did more than see and conquer, he absorbed so thoroughly that we had almost no knowledge of how the Gauls lived, so far as household effects were concerned. The character which descended from the Scalo-Roman race to the later French nation was optimistic and beauty-loving, with a strength which has carried it through many dark days. It might be said to be responsible for the French sense of proportion and their freedom of judgment which has enabled them to hold their important place in the history of art and decoration. They have always assimilated ideas freely but have worked them over until they bore the stamp of their own individuality, often gaining greatly in the process. One of the first authentic pieces of furniture is a behood or chest dating from some time in the 12th century and belonging to the Church of Obazine. It shows how furniture followed the lines of architecture and also shows that there was no carving used on it. Large spaces were probably covered with painted canvas, glued on. Later, when panels became smaller and the furniture designs were modified, moldings, etc. began to be used, these behutes or hookies, from which the term hookiers came meaning the corporation of carpenters, were nothing more than chests standing on four feet. From all sources of information on the subject it has been decided that they were probably the chief pieces of furniture the people had. They served as a seat by day and, with cushions spread upon them, as a bed by night. They were also used as tables with large pieces of silver dress or arranged upon them in the daytime. From this comes our word, dresser, for the kitchen shelves. In those days of brigands and wars and sudden death, the household belongings were as few as possible so that the trouble of speedy transportation would be small, and everything was packed into the chests. As the idea of comfort grew a little stronger, the number of chests grew. 
and when a traveling party arrived at a stopping place, out came the tapestries and hangings and cushions and silver dishes, which were arranged to make the rooms seem as cheerful as possible. The germ of the home ideal was there, at least, but it was hard work for the hours and the seal to keep out the cold and cover the bare walls. When life became a little more secure and people learned something of the beauty of proportion, the rooms showed more harmony in regard to the relation of open spaces and walls, and became a decoration in themselves, with the tapestries and hangings enhancing their beauty of line. It was not until some time in the 15th century that the habit of traveling with all one's belongings ceased. The year 1000 was looked forward to with abject terror, for it was firmly believed by all that the world was then coming to an end. It cast a gloom over all the people and paralyzed all ambition. When, however, the fatal year was safely passed, there was a great religious thanksgiving and everyone joined in the praise of a merciful God. The semicircular arch of the Romanesque style gave way to the Pointe arch of the Gothic, and wonderful cathedrals slowly lifted their beautiful spires to the sky. The ideal was to build for the glory of God and not only for the eyes of man, so that exquisite carving was lavished upon all parts of the work. This deeply reverent feeling lasted through the best period of Gothic architecture, and while household furniture was at a standstill church furniture became more and more beautiful, for in the midst of the religious fervor nothing seemed too much to do for the church. Slowly it died out, and a secular attitude crept into decoration. One finds grotesque carvings appearing on the choir stalls and other parts of churches and cathedrals and the standard of excellence was lowered. The chest, table, wooden armchair, bed, and bench, were as far as the imagination had gone in domestic furniture, and although we read of wonderful tapestries and leather hangings and clothes embroidered in gold and jewels, there was no comfort in our sense of the word, and those brave knights and fair ladies had need to be strong to stand the hardships of life. Glitter and show was the ideal and it was many more years before the standard of comfort and refinement gained a firm foothold. Gothic architecture and decoration declined from the perfection of the 13th and 14th centuries to the over-decorated, flamboyant Gothic of the 15th century, and it was in the latter period that the transition began between the Gothic and the Renaissance epochs. The Renaissance was at its height in Italy in the 15th century, and its influence began to make itself felt a little in France at that time. When the French under Louis XII seized Milan, the magnificence of the court of Ludovico Sforza, the great Duke of Milan, made such an impression on them that they could not rest content with the old order, and took home many beautiful things. Italian artisans were also imported, and as France was ready for the change, their lessons were learned and the French Renaissance came slowly into existence. This transition is well shown by the Chateau de Guillon, built by Cardinal Dubois. Gothic and Renaissance decoration were placed side by side in panels and furniture, and we also find some pure Gothic decoration as late as the early part of the 16th century, but they were in parts of France where tradition changed slowly. Styles overlap in every transition period, so it is often difficult to place the exact date on a piece of furniture, but the old dies out at last and gives way to the new. With the accession of Francis I in 1515 the Renaissance came into its own in France. He was a great patron of art and letters, and under his fostering care the people knew new luxuries, new beauties, and new comforts. He invited Andrea del Sardo and Leonardo di Avensi to come to France. The word Renaissance means simply revival and it is not correctly used when we mean a distinct style led or inspired by one person. It was a great epoch, with individuality as its leading spirit. 
led by the inspiration of the Italian artists brought from Italy and molded by the genius of France. This renewal of classic feeling came at the psychological moment, for the true spirit of the great Gothic period had died. The Renaissance movements in Italy, France, England and Germany all drew their inspiration from the same source, but in each case the national characteristics entered into the treatment. The Italians and Germans both used the grotesque a great deal, but the Germans used it in a coarser and heavier way than the Italians, who used it aesthetically. The French used more especially conventional and beautiful floral forms, and the inborn French sense of the fitness of things gave the treatment a wonderful charm and beauty. If one studies the French chateau one will feel the true beauty and spirit of the times blow as with its history of many centuries, and then some of the purely Renaissance chateaux, like Chambord. Although great numbers of Italian artists came to France, one must not think they did all the beautiful work of the time. The French learned quickly and adapted what they learned to their own needs, so that the delicate and graceful decorations brought from Italy became more and more individualized until in the reign of Henry I.I. the Renaissance reached its high water mark. The furniture of the time did not show much change or become more varied or comfortable. It was large and solid and the chairs had the satisfactory effect of good proportion while the general squareness of outline added to the feeling of solidity. Oak was used, and later walnut. The chair legs were straight, and often elaborately turned, and usually had strainers or under framing. Cushions were simply tied on at first, but the knowledge of upholstering was gaining ground, and by the time of Louis XII was well understood. Cabinets had an architectural effect in their design. The style of the decorative motive changed but it is chiefly in architecture and the decorative treatment of it that one sees the true spirit of the Renaissance. Two men who had great influence on the style of furniture of the time were Andrewet du Cercio and Hugues Sambin. They published books of plates that were eagerly copied in all parts of France. Sambin's influence can be traced in the later style of Louis XIV. Illustration, by courtesy of the Metropolitan Museum of Art this Gothic chair of the 16th century shows the beautiful linen fold design in the carving on the lower panels and also the keyhole which made the chest safe when traveling. The marriage of Henry I.I. and Catherine de' Medici naturally continued the strong Italian influence. The portion of the Renaissance called after Henry I.I. lasted about 75 years, and corresponds with the Elizabethan period in England. During the regency of Marie de' Medici, Flemish influence became very strong, as she invited Rubens to Paris to decorate the Luxembourg. There were also many Italians called to do the work. And as Rubens had studied in Italy, Italian influence was not lacking. Degeneracy began during the reign of Henry I.D., as ornament became meaningless and consistency of decoration was lost in a maze of superfluous design. It was in the reign of Louis XII that furniture for the first time became really comfortable. And if one examines the engravings of Abraham Boss one will see that the rooms had an air of home-likeness as well as richness. The characteristic chair of the period was short in the back and square in shape it was usually covered with leather or tapestry, fastened to the chair with large brass nails, and the back and seat often had a fringe. A set of chairs usually consisted of armchairs, plain chairs, folding stools and elliptoripos. Many of the armchairs were entirely covered with velvet or tapestry, or, if the woodwork showed, it was stained to harmonize with the covering on the seat and back. The twisted columns used in chairs bedposts, etc. were borrowed from Italy and were very popular. Another shape often used for chair legs was the X that shows Flemish influence. The Lipteripos, or chaise longue, was a seat about six feet long, sometimes with arms and sometimes not. 
and with a mattress and bolster. The beds were very elaborate and very important in the scheme of decoration, as the ladies of the time held receptions in their bedrooms and the king and nobles gave audiences to their subjects while in bed. These latter were therefore necessarily furnished with splendor. The woodwork was usually covered with the same material as the curtains, or stained to harmonize. The canopy never reached to the ceiling but was, from floor to top, about 7 feet 3 inches high, and the bed was 6 1 2 feet square. The curtains were arranged on rods and pulleys, and when closed this lit and hoose looked like a huge square box. The counterpane, or coverture de parade, was of the curtain material. The four corners of the canopy were decorated with bunches of plumes or panache, or with a carved wooden ornament called pum, or with a bouquet of silk. The beds were covered with rich stuffs, like tapestry, silk, satin, velvet, cloth of gold and silver, etc. All of which were embroidered or trimmed with gold or silver lace. One of the features of a Louis XII room was the tapestry and hangings. A certain look of dignity was given to the rooms by the general square and heavy outlines of the furniture and the huge chimney pieces. The taste for cabinets kept up and the cabinets and presses were large, sometimes divided into two parts, sometimes with doors, sometimes with open frame underneath. The tables were richly carved and gilded, often ornament with bronze and copper. The cartouche was used a great deal in decoration, with a curved surface. This rounded form appears in the posts used in various kinds of furniture. When rectangles were used they were always broader than high. The garlands of fruit were heavy. The cornucopias were slender, with an astonishing amount of fruit pouring from them. And the work was done in rather low relief.